From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. A universal school voucher system for Florida is gaining traction among lawmakers, although there are some who worry it may not do everything for everybody. It's a non-starter because they can't even afford the current price. Also this week, in advance of the upcoming Florida legislative session, a veritable buffet of education proposals, many of them controversial. And as we see this move toward partisan boardsmanship, I'm, I'm growing extremely concerned. And in addition to all the stories about education, we'll get the latest on Governor Ron DeSantis' suspension of Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren. I'm Tom Flanagan. This is Capitol Report. Debate over a plan to give nearly every K-12 student in Florida a stipend to pay for private school, homeschool, or certain education-related expenses officially got underway this week. A school choice bill introduced in the state legislature last week would deliver what proponents describe as universal choice. As Valerie Crowder reports, the measure is expected to pass, although the final version may not look the same. Tallahassee resident Alkesha Williamson is a working single mother of five. All three of her school-aged children attend Capital Prep, a local Christian private school for K-12 students. Williamson says the state's voucher program is what allowed her to enroll her daughter, who has autism, in a school that's tailored to meet her needs. In public school, I was getting phone calls, hey, come pick up your child, we can't control her, she's having a tantrum, she's not doing her work, we gave her an extra day, she's not listening, and I have not had to deal with any of that since switching to private school. That's why Williamson made the trip up to the Capitol to express her support for the bill during its first committee hearing Thursday. For Williamson, though, the voucher expansion measure isn't perfect. If we were able to also expand that to where those funds can be used for things like transportation, because I'm a working mom, so I have to, you know, I have to drive my kids to school. So transportation would help. Any type of extra funding would help supply the uniforms. Most private schools have uniforms, you know, um, so that would, um, you know, take a big weight off of me as a mom. Right now, students may use voucher funds for transportation to public school if it's outside the district or wasn't assigned to the student. However, those dollars aren't allowed to cover transportation costs to private schools. That's been a historical problem with the Choice program as a whole. All the low-income students who might have the illusion of, I want to go to that school, it's a non-starter because they can't even afford the current price. Scott Hodenstein is president of the Democratic Public Education Caucus of Florida, a public education advocacy group. He's also a former teacher. He says lawmakers would have to radically change the bill before he'll support it. For starters, Hodenstein wants lawmakers to cap tuition increases at private schools that accept vouchers. Let's say you go to a private school, it's 25000 a year, and now you get a $7,000 voucher. That private school is going to increase their tuition to $32,000. You're going to pay the same $25,000 because you already do, you can afford it. But that school just took $7,000 of public money and made even more of a profit. Democrats tried on Thursday to cap participating private school tuition increases at 1.5%, but that amendment failed in committee. 
Under the measure, students at any income level could get a voucher. Jacksonville Representative Angie Nixon tried to limit eligible household income to $1 million. I just don't think that we should be subsidizing millionaires to take funding from public schools. Nixon's amendment also failed in committee. Bill sponsor Republican Representative Kaylee Tuck of Lake Placid explained why she couldn't support it. The point of the bill is to expand options for all students regardless of income status. Still, as public school advocates like Scott Hodenstein note, many low-income students won't be able to afford private school even with the vouchers. Another issue Democrats have raised is the lack of state protections for minority, immigrant, and LGBTQ students. Representative Angie Nixon proposed adding those protections, but the amendment failed. Still, there are some private schools offering safe spaces on their own. Sheeran Radigan owns Colossal Academy in Fort Lauderdale. Radigan is also a mother, and she supports the voucher program because it helps parents send their students to progressive schools like hers. This bill is not just about funding religious schools. It's also about funding other choices for families where they don't feel like they have a safe place to be. Radigan says this is needed as local districts ban library books and state officials restrict instruction on race and LGBTQ topics. There are lots of school models that are opening that are safe spaces for children of all kinds of needs, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of identities, and this also funds that. The school choice bill is a priority for the state legislature this year. It's expected to ultimately cross the finish line and end up on Governor Ron DeSantis' desk. I'm Valerie Crowder. The controversy over an advanced placement course in African-American studies exploded as the state's refusal to accept the course as is encountered resistance. Margie Menzel reports civil rights attorney Ben Crump is threatening to sue over the rejection as the DeSantis administration doubles down on its defense that the course is, quote, indoctrination, not education. I can't believe that this is 2023 and America is talking about censoring education. This is America, not a communist nation. Elijah Edwards would be one of three plaintiffs if Crump brings the lawsuit. Here he's speaking to a crowd of supporters during a recent press conference at the state capitol. I thought here in this country we believed in the free exchange of ideas, not the suppression of it. I don't expect much to change in Mr. DeSantis' mind. But he has the power to work with the college board to approve the valuable curriculum that is so desperately needed. I hope he does. Edwards is a 10th grade gifted student in Tallahassee. He also belongs to a mentoring program for minority young men in high school. He and the other two students are up against Governor Ron DeSantis, who was asked about his objections to the AP course at a press event on Monday. You know, as you know, uh, in the state of Florida, our education standards not only don't prevent, but they require teaching black history, all the important things. That's part of our core curriculum. This was a separate course on top of that for advanced placement credit. And the issue is we have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. If you fall on the side of indoctrination, we're going to decline. If it's education, then we will do. Education Commissioner Manny Diaz released an infographic that specifies the state's concerns. Intersectionality and activism, black queer studies, movements for black lives, black feminist literary thought, the reparations movement, and a topic called black study and black struggle in the 21st century. 
Alex Lanfranconi, a spokesman for the Florida Department of Education, said in a statement, the teaching of African-American history has been expanded in Florida since Governor Ron DeSantis took office. One example from his first term is HB 1213 passed and signed into law in 2020. This is a bill that requires all Florida students to learn about the Okoe massacre. DeSantis says much of the AP course content is problematic and shouldn't be taught to Florida students. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. At least one of the would-be plaintiffs has confidence that students can handle the material. Times are changing, education is expanding, and students have higher levels of curiosity than ever before. Juliette Heckman is a junior at Leon High School in Tallahassee. She's already taken four AP courses and wants to take this one. State Senator Geraldine Thompson of Orlando said at the rally that while a law requiring schools to teach African-American history was passed in 1994, it's not being enforced in most Florida counties. 30 years and there has been no consequence whatsoever for instructors who are not teaching African-American history. If we say that the speed limit is 70 and someone goes 80, the highway patrol is there with some consequences. But there have been no consequences for not teaching African-American history. Thompson says she and Representative Gallup Franklin will file a bill to require every school in Florida, not just public schools, but religious, charter, and voucher schools if they get tax dollars, to teach African-American history. Victoria McQueen says she's learned most African-American history on her own. She's a junior at Leon High who has taken six AP courses and is dual enrolled at Tallahassee Community College. She's agreed to be one of the plaintiffs in the potential class action lawsuit. Learning about the death of Emmett Till, a young man who is not much younger than I am when he was lynched, is something that every child at their own discretion should learn. Because even as it is terrible history, it is the American history of an African-American. That's right. wow. Then there's the Tulsa Race Massacre, also known. Speaking at the rally, Fed Ingram of the American Federation of Teachers warned that the governor's position on the AP African-American Studies course is part of a pattern of politicizing education and creating an atmosphere where some ideas are valued more than others. Let me say to the general public, this is not step one for Mr. DeSantis. Mr. DeSantis has banned books in the state of Florida. Mr. DeSantis has said openly and loudly that he is going to take over school boards and politicize them for his own good. Mr. DeSantis is trying to squelch teacher voice. Teachers are in the classroom and afraid to say anything about what happens to their children. I'm Margie Menzel. Governor Ron DeSantis has expressed support for a proposal in the Florida legislature to make school board races partisan. 
but that's not what the Founding Fathers would have wanted, according to Meredith Montford, an associate professor at Florida Atlantic University. She spoke with WUSF's Carrie Sheridan about why President Thomas Jefferson was a leading proponent of nonpartisanship in schools. Actually, this was one of the longest debates that the Founding Fathers did have. This occurred with 39 Founding Fathers over seven years as to what is the purpose of schools in this country. Obviously, before we had school boards, we needed schools. And it was Thomas Jefferson who forwarded first and the ideology that eventually got accepted and put into the mainstream belief system was that America needed to create participant, self-governing, democratic citizens in this burgeoning country in order to perpetuate democracy in generations into the future. Thomas Jefferson said that if we change school board's representation every time there was a changing administration, say, you know, we went from Democratic to a Republican, a Republican, that with that, our curriculum would change, would shift. And that could be potentially every four years. And that would create instability into the curriculum of what students learn in this country. And they thought that would create far too much instability. That's another reason or key reason that school boards are nonpartisan bodies. They have never been political. They've always been considered apolitical. And as we see this move toward partisan boardsmanship, I'm, I'm growing extremely concerned. Tell me more about what Thomas Jefferson foresaw and why he thought if a political party were to change or gain control, how that would change education. Through curricular, what becomes important, whether books are banned, some books are banned, some books are not. I think what we're experiencing right now, at least in Florida, is very indicative of what happens when you have extreme opposite ideologies between Republicans and Democrats and what is acceptable curriculum, or in this case, library books, in our schools. And this is why this should be left to the local school board. Why them and not the state and not the feds? Because Thomas Jefferson also believed that those people within that community have the most interest in the outcome of those children who, have, who go through those schools because they're most likely to become citizens within that community in the future. So what would you suggest people do in communities where their school boards have become extremely politicized and the people who speak at the meetings are extremely politicized? What's the way back? You know, looking carefully at a motive, one of the things I looked at were the motivations of school board members, why they run. Very few run. Nationally, only 3%, at least as of 2000, run for political reasons. And now we see that happening more and more, at least in this state, about 50% run for reasons that are purely altruistic, really, if you want to call it the right reason or reasons that are good for kids, good for schools, and then the other 50%, not so much. So we need to make some decisions or find out ways of vetting board members 
And I think we need to be careful. If the motive is to get Democratic board members off and replace them with Republicans or vice versa, then that doesn't speak to the mission of their job. So to me, as a voter, I'm not interested in that person. That was FAU Associate Professor Meredith Mountford speaking to WUSF's Kerry Sheridan. Coming up on Capitol Report, our resident reporter who concentrates on education issues takes us to school on some other education matters the Florida legislature may enact during the upcoming session. A lot of the local decision-making being usurped really by the legislature and even a lot more decisions that are coming down unilaterally from the governor's office. And suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren still doesn't have his job back, even though a federal judge determined Governor DeSantis broke the law by removing Warren from office. On Capitol Report, we have been talking education. We have everything from an expansion of the state's voucher program into something more universal. We have a big controversy regarding the AP African-American Studies curriculum, which is still a pilot project. We have partisan political school boards, Koshlin Hatter, a lot of things going on, and that may not be the end of it. More to come potentially during this upcoming legislative session. Oh, yeah, Tom. You know, for years, education has been a big focus here in the state of Florida. And a lot of these things date back about 25 years. If you remember the election of former Governor Jeb Bush, who really rolled out a massive education policy reform. And governors ever since have noticed that that is a winning issue and have actively campaigned on it. Now we have become much more partisan since then. And education has sort of been one of the last places of sort of bipartisanship in a way. And so now you have the advent of sort of new culture wars where people are really drilling down into what are these teachers telling our kids? How are they talking about things like race, history, gender, and sexual identity? How do these things play out in schools? And so this has sort of become the new front um, in, in sort of this new culture war that we're experiencing. And that's why you see a lot of these measures that are now saying superintendent, or rather school board members, need to be elected in partisan races, not nonpartisan races, which means that they need to have their political party attached to them. You see this effort in term limiting school boards. We went to 12 years last year. There's a bill to push it down to eight. That is kind of now what's driving um, education policy and sort of this new age of hyper-partisan politics. We're also seeing, though, an awful lot more top-down kind of dictums when it comes to local school districts. Even Governor Jeb Bush, as you already talked about, as really determined as he was to create a new paradigm for public schools in the state of Florida, would never have thought to get involved in the local, let's say, a curriculum dispute within uh, one of the state's 67 school districts or to try to take a, a local school superintendent to task for what was or was not being done in that district. But we are seeing that now. We are. And this really started under former Governor Rick Scott, who really sort of took a top line view of the role of the governorship 
and it accelerated when uh, former Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran was speaker. In Florida, Florida has traditionally had this idea that the government closest to the people is the government most representative of the people. It's the home rule concept. But the legislature increasingly in recent years has said no, you know, when it comes to things like guns, when it comes to things like ports, when it comes to things like sunscreen, you local cities, counties, and municipalities cannot be making 67 different sets of rules. We have to have certain rules that do apply to everyone to avoid confusion. And so what you're seeing right now is sort of the outgrowth of that, much more power being consolidated in the Florida legislature, a lot of the local decision-making Um, being usurped really by the legislature and even a lot more decisions that are coming down unilaterally from the governor's office. Um, It's part of this sort of pendulum that we often talk about when it comes to what these issues look like in the through line of history. Progress is not a straight line. It's a pendulum. It toggles back and forth and back and forth. And for a lot of these sort of home room issues, or rather home rule issues, you're sort of starting to see this consolidation of power at the top instead of trickling down, you know, and being made at that local bottom level. So with all this being said, Lin you've been following this for so many years. Are you anticipating any additional initiatives coming out of this legislative session beyond what we've already just been talking about on on today's program? Oh, yeah. And not just in education, Tom. You know, education is definitely going to be a big focal point, but we can also expand this conversation around what can local governments do regarding affordable housing. You have the ongoing kind of conversation around rent caps, rent control. There are a lot of local municipalities that want to pursue that because of the rising costs of rent. And so you've seen the legislature in the past sort of float these ideas. They didn't quite get as far, but do not be surprised if you're going to see a lot of bills as we do every session that look to override decisions local governments have already done and preempt possibly decisions that local governments are considering. One month and a handful of days until the start of the 2023 Florida lawmaking session, and we'll be following it for you every step of the way. WFSU Public Media News Director Lynn Hatter joining us on this issue of Capital Report. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Tom. Legislation filed at the state capitol would define certain anti-Semitic acts as hate crimes and also increase criminal penalties. Under the proposed bill, people who distribute pamphlets or flyers with hateful anti-Semitic messages, along with those who deface or damage religious property or project images on another person's property without permission, could be charged with a third-degree felony. The legislation comes following several instances of anti-Semitic banners being hung from interstate overpasses, the projection of swastikas on buildings in Jacksonville and West Palm Beach, and hateful flyers being distributed in Jewish communities in South Florida. State Representative Randy Fine, who is Jewish, says hate speech and hate crimes have made many Jewish people in the state feel unsafe. 
The reason we must speak is silence in the face of evil is evil itself. And what we're doing here today is we're saying in the Florida House that there's no room for this. If passed, Fine says the legislation would be the first of its kind in the country. There are roughly 670,000 Jewish people living in Florida. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren after he signed a statement saying he would not enforce state laws on abortion or transgender health care. A federal judge has ruled that DeSantis violated state and federal law, but he also said he doesn't have the power to compel the governor to reinstate Warren. WUSF Steve Newborn unwinds the technicalities surrounding this case with Louis Verrelli, a professor at Stetson University College of Law. Why would Andrew Warren pursue this in federal court to begin with if the judge could not have him reinstated? So I don't think it's accurate to say the judge knew in advance he couldn't have him reinstated. So the, the judge's decision not to reinstate Andrew Warren is based on the breadth of the violations by Governor DeSantis. So ironically, because Governor DeSantis violated both the Florida and the federal constitutions by suspending Andrew Warren, the federal court is hamstrung in its remedy. It can't provide a remedy, according to the district court judge, because the federal violation wasn't the primary or exclusive problem with the suspension of Andrew Warren. Put another way, the federal judge can't remedy a state violation, even though one occurred, and it because it appears to the judge that, that state violation was at least of equal magnitude to the federal violation, then there's no remedy from the federal courts. As to why you would pursue it in federal court, that's pretty standard. Generally speaking, plaintiffs prefer not to sue state government officials in their own courts if they can avoid it. But federal courts have regularly been the forum of choice for civil rights cases, and this is a civil rights case in a way because suing government officials in their own court system has been deemed by plaintiffs to be not a strategic advantage. So Judge Hinkle found that Governor DeSantis violated his First Amendment rights on the federal level. What was the state law that he allegedly had violated here? He violated the state constitutional provision that says the governor can suspend an elected official, but basically for negligence or incompetence. And it's not a matter of neglect in the traditional colloquial sense. It really means someone's literal refusal to do any part of their job or their physical or mental incapability to do the work. And that's what the federal judge said. And there's under no circumstances that Andrew Warren meet that standard. So what you're saying here, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that the violation of the state law carried more legal weight than the violation of the First Amendment. Or carried enough legal weight that the federal judge couldn't say I am only remedying a federal violation here, and therefore I can reinstate Andrew Warren. And the most important part of that ruling, in the federal judge's mind, there is absolutely no legal basis upon which Governor DeSantis could suspend Andrew Warren. Put another way, Governor DeSantis violated both the federal constitution and the Florida constitution by suspending Andrew Warren. So what are the next steps that Mr. Warren can take here? Can he go back to federal court or would he have the same problems with them not having the power to reinstate him there? Right. So I think he's got two choices, right? One is to appeal to the federal appellate court to say, no, the First Amendment violation was enough of a factor here that you actually can remedy it and reinstate me. That's one choice. The other thing he can do, and this is a little unusual, 
and this is something that the federal judge specifically set him up to do in the way he issued this ruling, he can go to state court on the Florida constitutional claim, even though he's already litigated it once. Generally in America, once you've litigated an issue, you don't get to do it again. He is allowed to do it again because the federal judge dismissed that claim without prejudice. And the reason he did that is because he thinks the claim has merit, but he just can't fix it himself. So what he is doing is legally creating the opportunity for Andrew Warren to have a second bite at the Florida constitutional apple by going to state court. I can't imagine it would be irrelevant to Florida state courts that a federal court found unequivocally that Governor DeSantis violated the Florida Constitution, but they would not be bound by that decision. Louis Varelli is a law professor at Stetson University College of Law. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Carrie Sheridan and Steve Newborn. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the state capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.